The reason why I can say that space is a singularity and matter is a multiplicity, giving an illusion of multiplicity to the singularity of space is because there are vacuum variable capacitors that you can buy from Russia through eBay. Tesla made use of variable, in fact, he invented variable vacuum tube capacitors, and they did not become commercially available until a year before his death in 1942. But you can buy these vacuum tube capacitors, and they literally are using the vacuum of the tube to store the charge. And we know this because there have been experiments done with materials that store charge, such as mica. Um, very often, Tesla liked to use mica as his dielectric of choice between the two plates of a capacitor to store a charge. In any case, if you've got a material substance, such as rubber, in between two plates, when you store a charge in that capacitor, you can remove the plates, replace them with new plates, and the charge will still be there in the dielectric material. The only purpose of the plates is to put the charge into the dielectric material and take it off, and also give it polarization of charge. You know, one plate is positive versus the other plate is relatively negative to the first plate. But it's in the dielectric material, such as rubber or mica or a vacuum, in which the charge is stored. And by knowing this, it changes the whole view of space, because now space is one vast dielectric material, all interconnected simultaneously with all the other points in space in creation. And that means whatever voltage you store in the space between the molecules of your body or in the space between the copper atoms of copper wire in the, in the uh, coil in our side of our electric cars, all of space registers what we put in any other point in space simultaneously because it's all one dielectric material that's connected with all the other space dielectric space in creation. So there's no lack of interconnectedness, and you don't need wires to do it, you don't need a light beam traveling at the speed of light to do it. It's there in space, but in the form of voltage, not in the form of current. Now, though the, those of us who have our own silly notions of why we have a speed of light in the first place... We b believe that it's not has nothing to do with the speed of light through space because light cannot travel through space, not when it's empty and, and a vacuum. <laughs> and what we get traveling down the wire is a response. The the valence um, charges on the copper atoms have to take time to respond when a change in voltage state occurs in the electron shells of the atom, assuming the standard conventional view of the atom. And so what we think is current traveling down the wire is really not current after all. It's a ripple of response in which atom after atom, like dominoes that are lined up, each one in turn responds with a time lag between them 
causing the appearance of, oh, we say energy is moving, uh-uh, information is traveling down the wire. No energy travels down the wire at all. Now, there is energy in the atom, in the copper atom of, let's say, a wire, <clears throat> and we can change its excitation state up or down. And if we change it too high, the copper atoms can no longer bind with each other in the wire, and the wire explodes into nanofine particles of copper dust so fine that it won't even fall to the floor. It'll just blow out the window. It can't even fall because they're too small. Now, when we form copper wire, we heat it up, and so it becomes exothermic. It's now emitting heat, the, the molten slag of uh, dross, we, we scoop off the top and it sinks and the other sinks to the bottom and we're left with pure copper metal that we can now cool and it'll bind together with itself because it's pure copper atom molecule, um, pure copper atoms of copper. It's not copper ore anymore. Copper ore is dirt and it's got other stuff mixed in there, sulfur and oxygen and whatnot and silica that causes it to behave like dirt. But when we get rid of the dirt, it becomes pure, pure copper metal, but we have to heat it to do it. And when we heat it, it becomes exothermic, meaning it radiates heat. Now, if you study free energy devices of any sort, now there's a, a Leroy Rogers in Iona, Florida. He's still alive. I first learned about him 43 years ago when I returned from MIU. Little pamphlets I got out of the back advertisements of magazines, I sent away for the pamphlets to learn about free energy 43 years ago. And I thought, oh, they don't need my help. They're doing just fine. Well, they need a lot of help. <laughs> I was so wrong. Be that as it may, I, I made, I've made a lot of wrong choices. That's not the first, and it's probably not the last. Um, but he's out there in Iona, Florida, and he's got the Department of Defense. He's got congressmen. Everybody under the sun is coming to visit his shop in his garage because he's got a fascinating discovery. He started out powering his gasoline car by taking out everything related to gasoline, such as the carburetor and you know the air filter, anything having to do because he wasn't going to feed his gasoline car gasoline anymore. He got compressed air tanks, and his car was a station wagon, so he put them in the back of the station wagon and connected it to the engine block because he realized when you, we, we explode gasoline, that's all we're doing is we're running the, 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 um, our gasoline car off of compressed air. So he ran his car off of compressed air, and then he realized, well, you know what? I can compress the air as I'm driving. <clears throat> And the thing ran with a layer of ice on the engine block. Now that tells me exactly what goes on in a free energy circuit, but I already knew from my simulation work that sometimes reactive power can function as a pump. So powerful, it can pull... I've done simulations in which it pulls energy off of, let's say it's the electric utility grid, miles away. You don't have to couple a coil directly around the transmission line to pick up its power through inductive coupling. You can have it miles away, and your little reactive circuit will suck it like crazy. And that's probably why I don't want to dispute 
the charges leveled against C. Earl Amon when he entered uh, Washington, D.C. back in 1921 with his device, his battery-less car, because maybe he was stealing energy from the grid. I don't know what was going on. Nobody knows. But it is theoretically possible to steal energy from the grid even though you're not directly coupled to it through inductive coupling, which is quite interesting. You could be miles away. According to Sierra Lamont, his, his wireless transmission of power was a range of 10 miles. And I suppose it was 10 miles because if you figure in the electric utility grid, the power lines, uh, the house wiring of all the bu- different buildings, you've got free transmission for nothing. You can, Anyway, he said all he needed, his power station was like in his basement or his attic, and all he needed was an iron coil sitting on the table within 10 miles of the power station and then he threw some rebar iron rebar down to lay against the iron coil and then he attached the two ends of the iron coil to a house buzzer let's say a doorbell buzzer and that thing had so much excess of voltage it literally leaped the 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 arc leaped uh, before he could complete the circuit and it buzzed with ferocity so he figured out something but it was wireless, the, what he ended up doing, whatever it was that he was doing. Now, there are also parallel stories of a um, t- uh, Mor- uh, Moray, T. Henry Moray, in which he would set up his box of various vacuum tube, you know, circuit, reactive circuit, and he'd get all this free energy out of it, and it worked best when it was near power lines nearby. You know, not 20 miles away or something. And so the fact that all of this points to the fact that it's the opposite of what we do when we melt copper ore. We make it exothermic and it radiates heat. Meanwhile, people like Leroy Rogers, which is running a me- who is re- running a mechanical device running off of the temperature and pressure of the air, Going undergoing various changes inside of his uh, mechanical device so he can compress it as he drives along. The fact that it's running with a layer of ice, a thin layer of ice on the engine block, tells me that reactive power tends to suck energy from its environment. It's endothermic. It's the opposite of what we do when we melt copper ore to create pure copper metal. That tells me that if the circuit should become imbibed with too much free energy, regardless of where it comes from, it will explode, and that's exactly what Tesla found out when I told you earlier, when he tested various levels of voltage and various levels of frequency, subjecting his um, uh, various materials of construction to those limits of frequency and, and voltage. He could explode copper wire, he could poke holes through the dielectric of a capacitor and fracture it, he could destroy the circuit. And there is a guy I read about in 2008, and that's all his circuit was good for. He could time it on a stopwatch to the second, at what point it would stop producing free energy because he didn't know how to regulate that production and it self-compounded at an exponential rate and literally toasted itself within about 90 seconds thereabouts, you know, somewhere in that ballpark. The, 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 the rubber insulation on the coils would melt and smoke and uh, the coils would start arcing and shorting out and, you know, the whole thing just destroyed itself. 
So it, it's in concert with what I've seen under simulation, so I know it's possible. I'm just not sure how to do it. Now, as I've been Ubering, I've gotten ideas about how C. Erleman may have done what he did 100 years ago. And it's because I was fed information in stages, literally. <laughs> Somebody's fe- feeding the, this stuff to me. And <clears throat> so I got this idea that the transistor was not discovered in 1940-something or other. It was sim- simply ma- commercially made available for the war effort. But it had been possible to have transistors 100 years ago in Sierra Lamont's time in liquid form. A, a watery solution of either borax or baking soda. You just modify, because <clears throat> they had diodes back then. You know what a diode is. It's It causes current to go in only one direction. So if you've got an alternating current, half the cycle the current's going to bunch up and cause a voltage buildup. And then the other half of the cycle it'll get released when the current is allowed to go in that particular direction to release that voltage buildup along with the voltage that's being fed. And so you get this big surge of current um, happening for every half cycle of an oscillating cycle, but it only goes in one direction. And that's, of course, in our alternator. When our alternator feeds our spark gaps, it wants to make sure that the current only goes in one direction. So I believe there is a diode on the alternator, and you can put another diode in the alternator a certain way that is uncanny. It just boosts the power ferociously and causes the spark gap in the spark the spark inside the spark gap to literally turn into the brilliance of the sun. It literally (laughs) ionizes everything and it makes a tremendous burning efficiency for the gasoline. But that's something Aaron Murakami discovered, um, such a simple modification to um, the setup inside our cars. In any case, oh, and... Not to be outdone, not to be forgotten. The military has known about this because they had certain bombers with humongous air intakes. And they were told, when they were flying across the Pacific, they were told to fly right as close to the surface of the ocean as is possible. Well, you have get a humidity cloud right there. And so it's sucking in all this humidity. And their spark uh, plug was designed a certain way to take advantage of flying that low to suck in the humidity and they literally were splitting the water molecule creating hydrogen and oxygen and using the hydrogen to ignite the nitrogen in the air which was also being converted into ammonia at the same time so they were able to reduce the amount of gasoline that they were consuming to fly across the Pacific and this is uh, the secret of Stanley Meyer's um, water-fueled dune buggy in which he didn't tell anybody, except in the earlier patents from Canada, that he was utilizing nitrogen from the air and creating synthetic ammonia on the fly as he was driving along, and then igniting the ammonia with the hydrogen that he split from the water, because ammonia is very hard to ignite, and but it has a lot of power, and hydrogen is very easy to ignite, <clears throat> so much so that a guy in Florida was running his little car off of orange wet mash that he got from the orange pulp left over from the uh, juice squeezers in Florida. Wet orange mash. He was igniting it with hydrogen that he split off from the water molecule of the water that he carried along, and he burned that orange mash, and it ran his car. 
So we know hydrogen burns really nice and hot when it ignites, but it's no power to it, and it implodes. It does not explode, so it can't really give you any oomph to accelerate up a hill. It'll idle your engine. You can idle an engine in your driveway off of water, but you can't go anywhere with it. <clears throat> uh, let's see. So... um what I got off topic was reactive power is an endothermic process in which if enough... and Now, I said regardless of how the energy enters the circuit, one way is energy harvesting from your environment or if you have something man-made like an electric utility grid nearby, then it's called outright theft because it's private property. But it got in the way. <laughs> if it wasn't there, you would just harvest it from the environment. So that's one way reactive power can act like a reactive pump and suck energy from its environment and cause this circuit to harvest or steal energy from nearby, wherever it can get it. That's one way. The second way that reactive power can create free energy inside of a circuit is by recycling power. Now, Jim Murray and Paul Babcock, they have a patent. Um, they have more than one. The latest one is 2018. I met them in 2015, and that's when they met each other, and they joined forces, and they solved each other's problems, and they literally figured out how to recycle energy. We're charged... The residential customer is charged for multiple uses of energy, even though we don't know about that. But commercial use, industry, like conveyor belts and an assembly line, they're charged once and the energy is sent back to the grid and they have to get it from the grid again a second time, pay for it a second time in order to use it a second time. Now, Jim Murray had a job. He was hired by Bechtel Steel up in Michigan and they had rock-moving equipment, all of it electric-driven, and it, they were paying through the nose for, to move the rock around. And he installed something called a synchronous generator, which electrical engineers know all about, and he managed to recycle energy in-house and save them on their electric bill. Well, the electric company didn't like that. They came in and said, what are you doing? Okay, we'll let you do it, but nobody else. Well, wouldn't you know it, he gets a job offer. I think that was a setup. To go somewhere else and get better pay. He leaves. The electric company swoops in, says, shuts down the uh, synchronous generator, says, no more of that shit. You're going to pay for every single time you use electricity from the grid. You've got to pay for it every time. So we know that electricity can be recycled. And so Jim Murray and Paul Babcock came up with this switching technology to shuffle energy back and forth between banks of capacitors and put a resistive load such as light bulbs in between. And every time it goes, between the energy shifts between one bank of capacitors and in its travel across the resistive light bulb to the other bank, they get to reuse the same electricity multiple times, 50 times. And that was a scaled-down version that was not very efficient. So they were drawing. They literally had a watt meter on the electric outlet. They were drawing one watt of power and lighting up 50 watts of electric light bulb, incandescent light bulb. You know how they heat up. They have so much inefficiency. They heat up, they light up. 
Fifty times they used the electricity before it was lost or or sent back to the grid or both, actually. And that was a conservative device. And they had the device. I saw it at the conference that I went to in Idaho. I went in 2013, 2014, 2015. Excuse me. They met each other in 2013. And it was in 2014 that they exhibited their device the following year. They figured out, they pulled their resources, their knowledge base, and they figured out how to get the switching to work fast enough to be able to get a 50-time factor gain. And it's amazing. And they patented it. And they get away with patenting it because they never use, oh, free energy over unity. Oh, the patent office would never go along with that. No, they say an assistive torque is sent back to the source. Isn't that a nice way to put it? (laughs) Well, torque is not easy to come by. You know, you can have volts. You can borrow volts and not spend it. Unfortunately, we uh, spend the voltage in our battery pack in our electric cars because we convert it into current, and that's a big mistake. Voltage should never be spent. It should be borrowed, and the current gotten elsewhere. And that's what I, one of the tricks of the trade, so to speak, I learned early on, is to separate voltage from current in a circuit and don't treat them as a single entity of watts because then you won't get anywhere. The other thing I learned is underfeed the circuit, starve it. And there's my first citation on my uh, peer review article. <clears throat> has to do with the northern section of the utility grid in northern India. And he doesn't know why, but he has thoroughly documented and published <coughs> his results in a scientific journal somewhere and repeated that on uh, researchgate.net which I also have an account and I do sometimes put stuff there. Anyway, he published his um, findings in which when the generators go offline in northern India and they no longer supply power to the grid, he, the, the grid ends up with power. Where did it come from? He doesn't know. And he shows how it builds. It's called negative damping or negative impedance in which normally due to entropy, uh, the amplitude of a wave, like if you strike a bell and you have this like uh, recording device, you know, like earthquakes, you know, but you're recording the vibration of the bell that you struck. As the amplitude dies out slowly, little by little, as it's ringing, you can plot that as a wavy function that diminishes in height as time goes by. And so as you're moving forward in time, the amplitude is diminishing. Well, this guy in northern India was showing that the amplitude was growing over time, not shrinking. He was doing the opposite. He was doing negative entropy, negentropy. <clears throat> Quite a fascinating thing. Now, when I published my article, I, I, the whole basis of my article was the reversal of time that general relativity provides for the reversal of time because sometimes there's a third type of reactive power that I didn't mention that can occur, and it's really bizarre. And initially, I thought it was the reversal of time because that was the only way the simulator told me what was happening. So that instead of entropy happening, negative entropy was happening, and power was building instead of diminishing. Oh, Time must have gone backwards, and I'd go into the simulator, and it would tell me time went backwards for a fraction of a second when I first start up the runtime simulation. I don't think that's actually what's happening, but at the time, that's all I could think of, and I think that's the only way software engineers can 
devise and write the software for their electronic simulators for professionals to utilize and pay thousands of dollars to buy because of their realism, I think that's the only way they the, sim, the software can exhibit what's called transience. They're called transients for a reason. They're short-lived surges of high-voltage, low-current. When you flick a switch, the two contacts of that mechanical switch are the capacitor plates of an air-based capacitor. And you're varying the distance between the plates as you close the switch, as you open the switch. And as you vary the capacitance by changing the distance between those two contacts you're doing what's called um, parametric variation or parametric excitation. In the audiophile industry, they call it parametric amplification. Um, and it literally, I've seen experiments I've done in which you can make power disappear in blocks, percentage blocks, or up here, so long as you already have power to begin with. So you're really just expanding or shrinking power, but you can literally do it at will if you know what you're doing. And that's just from a mechanical switch, such as a relay, anything with two contacts in physical space. If they change their distance between each other, you've got yourself the possibility for a transient surge happening, which doesn't have a whole lot of power to it because it has very little current. It's mostly just voltage, but it's at the beginning of turning on a free energy circuit. Very often it's at the beginning. And uh, the simulator, it shows it to me if I look for it. I didn't look for it in the beginning. But when I figured out how to look for it, then I saw it and then I wrote my paper and had it submitted and peer-reviewed and accepted. What I think is actually happening is this. I call it an event without a cause. And what, we, what I do in my circuit, I supply it with so little energy that I don't get in the way of the transient occurring because it's well known in the industry that voltage can suppress these anomalies from happening and so they have to keep the voltage up all the time in the grid because if it should drop then you get all these anomalies happening such as free energy and over unity and transformers blowing up in the substations and whatever all kinds of crazy things can happen so they don't want a brownout or a blackout, and they don't want an excessive amount of power either. They want everything, they call it balancing the load, in which everything is nicely even keel, maintains balance. Well, you know, that's like a 100-year flood you protect against with a 10-foot dam or a 10-year flood with a 1-foot dam. You know, all you can do is play the percentages and hope that nothing uh, weird happens most of the time. Otherwise, you lose your job at the, if you're managing the power grid. But you're playing a game of statistics because energy, any kind of energy, doesn't matter what it is, is a wild stallion by nature. It's fire. We, we are playing with fire that wants to do as it pleases, when it pleases, without warning. That's the nature of energy, of electrical energy. And we have put a bridle and a bit in its mouth and called it regulated conventional energy. And then <clears throat> I come along and say, hey you know what, I'm going to take the bridle and the bit a little bit out of its mouth. I'm going to loosen it up a little bit and take away all of this regulation that we have and make it possible for that wild stallion to buck and, and jump and do a little prancing. Most of the time, it's, God, it's, it's yoked down to the earth so solid, it's not allowed to do what it wants to do. 
And so when I'm studying, I'm studying the electrical equivalent of TNT. What happens in the chemistry of TNT when it blows up? Well, there's electrical stuff that goes on along with the chemistry. And if you study the electrical part and remove the chemistry and duplicate the electrical part that you studied with a free energy circuit, you've got basically what I've been studying for the last seven years is the equivalency of an electrical explosion. So powerful, it rivels why we bother with nuclear bombs. Because, I'll give you another example that, uh, that is equivalent to Stanley Meyer and his uh, use of um, the nitrogen in air to create ammonia. The Nazis had what was called an air fuel bomb. If you look it up in Wikipedia, you get the wrong explanation of what was going on. It's made up of, let's say, gasoline and carbon powder, microfine carbon powder. And it's set up in such a way as to create a double explosion a quarter second apart. The first explosion spreads the carbon powder into a cloud of a very high voltage of positive ionization that is busy reconfiguring the nitrogen in the air and the water molecules in the air to form ammonia with hydrogen left over. And then when the second explosion rips through the entire space of that carbon cloud, which is a semiconductor, by definition carbon is a semiconductor, you get a blast so powerful that the Russians got out their loudspeakers and they blasted a message to the Nazis on the, on the eastern front of World War II. They said, you do that again and we're going to bring out the mustard gas from World War I and see how much you like that. Okay? Stop it. <laughs> you're not playing fair. <laughs> and if you're going to play unfair, we're going to play unfair. Yeah, yeah, we can do it too, but it won't be the same as what you're doing. But you're not, you're not going to like what we do. And we don't like what you're doing. So stop it. <laughs> so there are a lot of things in the heaven and earth, uh, oh Horatio, as the saying goes, that are, that are not dreamt of in Horatio's philosophy, according to... Um, Hamlet in the last line of uh, Shakespeare's play. <laughs> anyway, so there's all kinds of things that are possible, and it rivels conventional wisdom, basically. And that's why a lot of us call quantum physics quantum mysticism, because I know that physicists have stolen ideas from electrical engineering and then and then they tell they stick their nose in electrical engineers business telling them not to do certain things not to think certain ways because now it's under the domain of physicists ooh and they get to have the government grants you won't see an electrical engineer working out of his garage with any government grant president eisenhower decried that in his farewell address to the nation in 1958 a year after i was born how the little guy working in his garage can't do jack shit because he can't get a hold of any money. All the money goes to the big institutions. Anyway, <laughs> I can go on and on with stories, you know. Um, his quote in that farewell address, Beware of the Military-Industrial Complex, is a very famous quote. And it specifically re, um, re, it refers to Exxon Oil. Exxon Oil leaned on President Eisenhower during his administration before he left office to lean on the Premier of Canada to shut down 
A bunch of scientists in Canada who were about to go to market, they had spent nine years of their workaday life researching why a carbon rod that fell through an inductive furnace heated up. Wow, that is weird. It's not a piece of metal. Normally only metal is supposed to heat up in an inductive furnace, and yet carbon, being a semiconductor, did. So they came up with a device that was over unity by a factor of something like 5 to 15 times more electrical output than input, and it gave you refrigeration for free. They're ready to go to market, and the financier spent millions of his dollars because he really believed in them. Mortgaged his house several times, and the Premier of Canada shut them down, all because of Exxon Oil leaning on President Eisenhower to lean on the Premier of Canada. So they said to themselves, no problem, we'll wait for the next guy to come into office. Well, who was the next guy? JFK. And guess what? His appointment date on his calendar to meet with these Canadian scientists one month after his death. So they gave up at that point. Uh, they got the message, and the son of the financier now inherited all that technology, and he's busy telling everybody, hey, just throw millions at me, and I'll license the technology to you. And nobody believes a word he says because they think he's a con man, because they're brainwashed not to believe it's possible. So, And this was back in the 60s they came up with this. And a documentary filmmaker went in and filmed it. That's the only reason why we know anything about it. And it's called Cold Heat from Canada. If you put that whole phrase in double quotes, Cold Heat from Canada, the DVD is online for sale and you can read, you can watch the documentary, you can listen to the son of the financier uh, talk about, uh, you know, trying to sell the technology to whoever wants to throw him money, lots of money. I mean, we've got technology left and right that's unbelievable. I'm not sure if I covered the cavitation of uh, water. John Worley Keeley and the hostile takeover uh, attempt that General Motors attempted against Henry Ford a century ago. And Henry Ford had already hired John Worley Keeley to put slots on the flywheel of the Model T that he sold a thousand Model Ts to happy farmers before the Depression when the family farm was still in vogue and the family farmer grew his own hooch, not because he wanted to get drunk, but because he wanted to put it in all his tractors and gasoline cars to run them. He wasn't running them off of petroleum. He was running them off of hooch that he'd take the, the corn husks and the corn stalks and not plow them into the ground. He'd ferment it, distill it, and run all of his factory equipment off of it. And so when, this, when the... Um, Great Depression happened. It was happened for multiple reasons. To get the family farmer off the family farm and have corporations take over and force all those uh, people into the cities looking for jobs. That's why we had the Grapes of Wrath movie made and the, and the what was it, Michener wrote the book or somebody, I forget, who wrote the uh, Grapes of Wrath. And it didn't stop there. We had to have prohibition to get people off of gasoline. So the gasoline car was never in, originally intended to run off of petroleum gasoline. It was originally intended to run off of 100% vodka ethanol. That's what it was intended to run off of. And the diesel motor was never intended to run off of petroleum diesel. Mr. Diesel took it to the uh, one of those world fairs, let's say the one in Chicago a century ago, 
and he exhibited, and the engine did not. It ran off of peanut oil of all things. And nowadays we know about uh, converting peanut uh, or vegetable oil into biodiesel. The military loves this to run all their stuff off of biodiesel, but there's a catch. If you don't know what you're doing, you can kill yourself because of the lethal vapors that are produced. And that may explain the mysterious death of Mr. Diesel because he was experimenting with the conversion of vegetable oil into biodiesel. And he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't ventilate, and he died. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we have all these weird things happening. Oh, so the slots. So the hostile takeover bid of General Motors uh, against Henry Ford. So he sent, he threatened to send a letter to all the happy owners what to do with their cow magnets. These are pill-shaped magnets that you force-feed it down a cow's throat. Because they're so dumb, they'll eat anything, even scrap metal on the on the ground, and it bunches up in their stomach, and they can't pass it, and they get a bellyache, and then they can't eat grass anymore. So you give them a cow magnet, and it attaches all the metal to it, and it passes efficiently through their gut, and they poop it out. Well, he he, he warned uh, General Motors uh, what uh, he's going to tell all the farmers what they can do with their cow magnets, put them in the slots on the interior walls of the flywheel and on the sides of the flywheel itself in the Model T and all you have to do is bring it up to speed a certain RPM cut the power from the engine and run it off the flywheel because they were traveling over level ground anyway (laughs) not very fast so it didn't require a whole lot of acceleration power but that's what was possible so General Motors backed away and then they came up with their plan B come out with a different model car every year don't don't change anything just change the chassis over the top uh, the shell that sits on top of the chassis base and change the color change the shape the model the name and uh, everybody thinks it's a different car and thus began that routine and he put uh, Henry Ford out of business because they couldn't retool fast enough to, to keep up with any kind of changes so he, they suffered a big, humongous slump, and they've never been the same since. And General Motors took the first position. <clears throat> Meanwhile, decades later, two guys figure all this out. And they're going to give a demonstration and a lecture. And they never made it to the, to the lecture. They were supposed to show up. And where were they? Well, the people went out looking for them, and they found their throats cut, and, and their Model T pushed into a ditch on the side of the road. And that was the last anybody heard of these guys. They were about to expose what Henry... They had discovered what Henry Ford had already put inside there. A free energy mechanical device. How do you like that? All you have to do is get it going. You know, you got to hand crank it, right? And then you... Because they didn't have electric starter motors. Then you get it going up to a certain RPM and then cut the power from the engine. So free energy is like... It is ubiquitous. It's always been with us. And we've done everything we can to suppress it. And, oh, I could tell you horror story after horror story. There's this guy, John Shizeka, who was hired by the CIA to go around and do just that. Infiltrate a company or a manufacturing place where they were doing something. Find out the weakest link. Could be one guy. That guy went nuts. He couldn't be replaced. And the whole operation was shut down. And then this John Shizeka would steal the technology and he stuffed all this stuff. He had multiple warehouses in Canoga Park 
in the valley, in the San Fernando Valley. And he took John Bedini aside and said, oh, I want to show you this stuff. And he showed them row after row in the warehouse of all this technology that was being suppressed by the CIA. There was one that involved an aluminum wedge. It was a primary battery. A primary battery is a non-rechargeable battery. You would drive in to a, like a gas station. It would take a minute to put in a new aluminum wedge, drain out the aluminum sludge that it collected at the bottom underneath where that wedge goes. That would be sent back to the plant, and they'd reprocess it and turn it into a pure wedge to, for resale. You literally... It was like a filler station, only faster. You could get an aluminum wedge replaced so fast, you'd be out of there in no time. And running off of electricity charged that was slowly dissipating as it ate away at the aluminum wedge and destroyed it very gradually, and it sank lower and lower because it was a triangular-shaped wedge. And this was in the 50s, and it was fully operational. They had these, uh, th these places were springing up all over the place, making electric cars very popular. If you had this special type of battery that you could replace very quickly. And Tesla had something similar. He was not using aluminum, though. He was using, I think it was nickel, if I'm not mistaken. And he claimed you could get 500 miles per plate you could get a range of 500 miles per plate. And it, it was so simple to swap out, a child could do it in a matter of minutes. So there's nothing new under the sun except this lack of collective consciousness. We're kept totally ignorant on this shit. And <clears throat> if I ever get any free time, or money, both, I'm going to put it, I'm going to, hey, I'm going to want to put into practice what I believe I understand what Sierra Lamont did 100 years ago and Nikola Tesla did 10 years later more efficiently um, in his Piercero demonstration of 1931. Um, but we have a picture, we have a newspaper article of Sierra Lamont and his brother standing on either side of their electric car with the power station strapped to the front end. And that picture was used in the article that was written up in one of the newspapers that showed up to document what was happening. Uh, Sierra Lamont said it took him seven years to develop the technology. Um, and it had a 10-mile range. It was wireless transmission of power. He So whether or not he was stealing energy from the grid, I don't know. You know, he may have just been using the grid to transfer energy. Uh, whatever was going on... It was wireless, and he had the power station to do it. So it wasn't like he needed power from the grid, per se. I don't know. Maybe his power station was not a power station. Maybe it was an extraction, a pump, pulling power from the grid. I don't know. There's no way for me to know that, uh, know what was really going on. There's really, there's no way. Anything is is conceivably possible. But this third possibility of reactive power, it, it arises from... So let's just assume that time goes backwards and that power can increase for a very short, brief moment. The power that we get out of that brief moment is... It's, I don't want to say ungodly. No, it's quite the opposite. It's very godly. It's so uncanny because it's an effect without a cause, which means it's not 
tied down to accountability, which means the conservation of energy has no applicability whatsoever. And that makes sense that it, to call it time going backwards because Noether's theorem is a sub-branch of conservation of energy, and she states that if time should change, any kind of ch- change to time, speed up, slow down, go backwards, conservation of energy goes out the window. Conservation of energy has certain predicates, and that's one of them, is that time has to remain constantly moving forward at the same pace all the time. And I think what happens inside the circuit, I don't think the energy knows what time is the way we know what time is. Our time is artificial. It's a clock. But time for energy is the frequency of its oscillations. And the faster you get something to react, to oscillate its reactants, the more energy buildup you can self-compound within a specific period of time. And there's something called parasitic um, oscillations that can arise as a consequence to a frequency that you're inputting. So if I input 30,000 cycles per second sine wave into a circuit of one microvolt input, I can get a parasitic oscillation that's 150,000 cycles per second, 50 times faster. Is that right? Five times. No, 50. Uh, 30, 150 is uh, 50. 50 times faster. Um, in addition to the fact, though, that the simulator thinks that the input frequency is its reference. And so I think what's happening is just like when you have two cars on the freeway, let's say, and you pa- one car is passing the other car. We don't say from the point of view of the faster car that the slower car is going backwards. We know it's not going backwards. It's going backwards relative to the car that's moving faster. And that's why I say relativity explains the reversal of time because it's simply a question of reference. What's, which is your reference? Which frequency is your reference? And so it makes it look like time is going backwards when in reality there's portions of the circuit in which time is simply going slower. That's all. In other portions, it's going faster. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> oh, God, there's so many different ways. You know, people are going to have to sort this out eventually over the next few centuries, and they will. When enough meditators become cosmic, they will figure it out. And they'll, uh, right now, we're just bumping our heads against all kinds of walls of ignorance, not knowing why, why what we're doing does what it does. You know, we, we, we try to come up with our best theory, but we're just guessing, you know, same as anybody else. Um, they'll really know. And what they'll know will not be totally from scientific observation because Charlie said the scientist of the future is going to have to become a scientist priest. And if you study electrical engineering and the free energy of it, there is no way you can account for everything. Some of it is just not accountable. And so, you know, it's like the square root and I'll finish with one last thing. When the math teacher tells you to take the the root of a square root problem and feed the two possible answers of your square root problem back into the problem to to, to uh, test for you know which answer is the right answer maybe both maybe only one maybe none of them don't take anything for granted and so you can do that if you're taking the square root of positive one or positive six. But how can you do that if you're taking the square root of negative 6 or negative 1? You can't. There's no answer to plug back in to test your results. 
And it's this realm of imaginary numbers the square, governed by the square root of negative one that is literally where all of this reactive power is coming from in the first place. It's, and so I call it the ether. Eric Dollard calls it counter space. The Vedic series uh, just gives a big lump uh, definition to all of it, calling it akasha. But, it, but they're holistic. So when they say Akasha, Max Mueller, who did the dictionary definition translation of the word Akasha into the word space back in the 1800s, now the latest addition to that um, translation dictionary, they don't use the word ether anymore from Akasha. They use space. And so I think it's both. I think there's physical space is one aspect of Akasha, and the non-physical ether of the imaginary plane of the square root of negative one is the other aspect, wherein the three gunas uh, exist. Whereas the doshas, which is merely a consequence, a mirage, you know, it's a daughter wave, a harmonic created from the main har main vibrations of the gunas interacting with each other, blending to create the, the doshas as an after effect. The doshas are a mirage, and yet they're in the physical, and we can see them. Anyway, I covered that earlier. Yeah, I'm repeating myself. So I thought I'd fill you in on some of this stuff, in addition to what I told you earlier, because... It's more fantastic than what people are imagining. Free energy literally is this fantastic, godlike ability. It's literally it blows your mind when you when you, as you learn these things and realize and realize them, um, like the uh, simultaneity of information transference across the whole of creation. I mean, it, once you study a vacuum tube capacitors, there's no other conclusion you can come to. That's the only conclusion. That we're quagmiring ourselves in the speed of light limitation because we're dealing with current. And, uh, oh, by the way, no astronaut has ever seen stars in space, and they can't even see the sun. Now, now, now I'll shut up after this. They have to put Fresnel lens grating in the windows to the space capsules because there's no way they can see the stars in space to orient their position. There's no way. Because light cannot travel through the empty, inky emptiness of space. It does not travel. Other wavelengths can have an impact, but for some reason the visible light spectrum cannot have any impact whatsoever across empty space. And so balloonists who've gone up to like 50 miles or 100 miles up into the atmosphere, literally the sky, it might have been blue, you know, daytime when they took off, but when they get up there, it's inky black, and there is not a damn star in the sky. And they have to put gold, a thin layer of gold in between, sandwiched in between the two uh, plates of the visors of space uh, astronauts when they walk in space lest they accidentally look at the sun and not realize they're looking at it and blind themselves. So the gold protects their eyes, and then the Fresnel, frac, Fresnel grating helps them see, oh yeah, look, there's the sun. <laughs> Otherwise they wouldn't know the sun was around. I mean, this astronauts originally knew this, and they were shut up <laughs> really fast. Oh boy, they're not allowed to uh, share these uh, little tidbits with the public, God forbid. Um... Anyway, I guess that's enough said. So, 
some of some of us believe that since light cannot travel across empty space the speed of light is actually a time lag phenomenon in which matter needs a certain uh, duration to respond to changes in the voltage field of space to register let's say light in the upper atmosphere and then it diffracts across all the molecules in our atmosphere we have diffraction in our atmosphere so we can see stars but only because of diffraction in our atmosphere taking place but that time lag of what so-called speed of light is is really the response time of the atom responding to changes in its electron shell which is an electromagnetic field that surrounds the atom so true transfer of information across empty the vastness of empty space is done through voltage and it's not transfer and it doesn't move it's just everywhere simultaneously stored everywhere because space is the same singular dielectric material so if you put a charge over inside your nose of a certain voltage charge it's registered everywhere else in empty space simultaneously it's just a question of having the plates to pick up and read the change in voltage but you'll get a time lag and so if if you're counting on radiation you know the electromagnetic radiation but if you're simply taking off the charge that was stored here and you're sucking it off someplace else you can do it instantaneously take off the charge somebody could literally deplete us of voltage if they wanted to but it would have to be done in such a way as not to deplete the voltage of everything else in the universe and dissolve the universe i mean literally that's how you dissolve the universe is to understand the singularity of space and cognize it and have access to that reality so then it would be no problem you could dissolve the universe in an instant all at once because you know now i have to finish with one other story when we first moved into brentwood back around in the summer of 69 i was visited in the dream state i was asleep in my room and there's a long hallway leading from the front end of the house to the back end of the house where the bedrooms are and this guy was walking up i could see him while i was in my bed through the walls walking up the hallway and he had this body that threw off sparks and this is exactly what charlie lutz said the almighty does he throws off divine sparks and this is what enlightened people do with their space body when they become enlightened they gain a body of space that throws off these sparks and each one is a divine creation well he walked up the hallway in his space body and i saw it and freaked and woke myself up <laughs> to check and i ran down the hall and i i was looking for some intruder and of course he wasn't there because it was in another plane of existence that i was able to be allowed to see him this i'm pretty sure it was him because <laughs> they lived helen and charlie lived on the other side of sunset boulevard and i didn't know that the whole time we were there before uh, up until my parents uh, divorced and sold the house 20 years later they're on the other side of uh, sunset boulevard up until um, a few years before their mar my parents marriage broke down they were living on the other side just north of ucla and we were a little bit to the west of ucla so i'm pretty sure it was charlie lutz giving me a visit when i was about 12 years old 
<laughs> and Helen's always telling him, don't scare the meditators. Well, I wasn't even a meditator yet. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> with your help, I remembered that I was, but already a meditator. But anyway, I, it was a very... It's. If you imagine snow on your TV, if you get the wrong channel and you can't tune into anything, the old-style TV sets and the cathode ray tube and you see the snow, that's literally what his body looked like. It literally looked like that because it was throwing off all these sparks and it was very freaky <laughs> to my little 12-year-old mind. Anyway, i got to shut up now and go back to work maybe. I don't know. <laughs>